Thank you, Mark. Appreciate your ministry. The insight of how to manage being a youngster here in this church. Great stuff. I believe the uh, scripture is going to be on the screen for us this morning. And I'm going to read from Exodus starting in chapter 2, 23 uh, through to Exodus 3, 15. The word of God says the following, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God and God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard crying, them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. 
This is the gift of God's word to you and me this morning. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and I'm grateful that we have the opportunity to hear from you through this passage this morning. Teach us, guide us, lead us. Help us to have a bigger vision, a bigger understanding, a greater awareness of who you are to us. Whisper in our hearts, whisper in our ears your loving presence. Even now, for I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When my oldest son, Kyle, was about 10 years old or so, he got out of bed one night to go to the bathroom. Now, mind you, it was pitch black, and I'm sure he was a bit groggy to a certain degree, but he nonetheless walked right into the corner of his dresser, splitting open his lip, and immediately lets out this huge wail of pain and anguish, leading to this cry for help. Well, once he had calmed down a bit and we got the bleeding under control, it became very apparent that a trip to the emergency room was necessary to close this wound. Now, having personally experienced um, what was going to happen to him in just a few moments, uh, going to the doctor meant that there was going to be stitches involved. I knew that this was going to be uh, something very interesting to him, especially when he saw this long, um, sharp needle uh, full of anesthetic in order to numb the area in which he was going to receive these stitches. And I knew this was coming, but my 10-year-old son did not. So I had a decision to make, and I decided to take the path of sharing how cool Kyle was going to be the next day at school. He was going to have whiskers, just like his dad, right here on the lip. Not only that, but more importantly, I assured him that I would be with him during this time with the doctor, every step of the way. I will be with you, Kyle, I said. Don't worry, you have nothing to be afraid of. I will be right here with you. That's my promise to you. And in our family, at least, whenever we were negotiating with the truth, has that ever happened in your family? If we ended the conversation with the question, do you promise... What we meant by that question was, are you offering to me the ultimate oath that is never, ever to be broken? I promise. So with these reassuring tones, we took off to the emergency room, and after a brief stay in the waiting room, we were called to the exam room where, sure enough, the doctor looked at the lip and said, yes, we're going to have to give you some stitches. Whiskers, I said to Kyle. Whiskers, just like Dad's. And again, Kyle asked, are you going to be here with me, Dad? And I said, you bet. I will be here right with you at your side. Don't worry. You have nothing to be afraid of. Now, some of you think you know where this story is heading, as though that when the doctor comes back with the stainless steel tray and the rubber gloves and the vial liquid of anesthesia and this long, sharp needle, that I would get all woozy and pass out. I know that's what some of you are thinking. Well, not exactly, for when my son saw this needle for the very first time, it dawned on him that it was heading straight for his lip and that these whiskers were going to hurt. As this reality began to take shape in his mind, he just looked up at me, and then he started bawling his little eyes out because he didn't want the whiskers anymore. And though Kyle felt more than a little betrayed at how I characterized how cool getting stitches would be, he asked me one more time, a very simple question through his tears, and that is, Dad, are you going to be here with me? I will be with you, bud, I said, right here at your side the whole time. Don't worry, you have nothing to be afraid of. 
I promise. So I tell you that this morning because if you were to look at any one phrase that would thematically describe the exchange we just read about between Moses and God here in Exodus chapter 3, I believe it would be the phrase, I will be with you. Or if you were looking for a defining word in this adventure, perhaps it would be the word presence. God's mysterious, awesome, loving, peaceful, holy presence. I am, says God. Not I was, not I will be, but I am present right here, right now, with you always, I promise. So as we move along in our series about a relational God and our calling to follow this relational God, we, we leave the book of, uh, of Genesis and we come to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. I would describe the first chapter of Exodus in just a few short words as being about the people of Israel and its bondage or enslavement to the nation of Egypt. In fact, in Exodus 1.9, the king of Egypt says, look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal with them shrewdly. And so in verse 11 of chapter 1, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And in verse 13, they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked the people of Israel ruthlessly. That's chapter 1 in a word or two. In the opening of chapter 2, the writer quickly moves his focus downstream a bit from the nation of Israel to a family a Hebrew family, and shares with us the birth of a Hebrew baby boy named Moses. Now, as the narrative unfolds, we see this baby providentially rescued and drawn out from the River Nile by the king's daughter in order to be raised in her father's palace, the palace of the king, who was also known as the Pharaoh of Egypt. Just as quickly, however, the tale shifts from the infancy of Moses to his adult years. And by the end of chapter 2, we see Moses on the run, fleeing his threat to end his life, which comes from the hands of a man who raised him in the palace, the king of Egypt himself. Now, how Moses travels from there to here in just a few short verses, well, that's for you to read this coming week. These opening chapters are full of some great drama, and I encourage you to experience it this coming week just for yourself. But as we come to chapter 2, verse 23 right where we started our reading this morning. We see that Moses is now a married man and a sheep herder living in the wilderness of Midian. And suddenly, the scene changes. God makes his way from the edges of the action to the very center of the stage where all eyes are fixed on him in order to make one compelling point, which is this. Because of the cries of his people in bondage to Egypt, God hears their groaning, hears their groaning and he remembers their covenant. That's a key verse. It's actually a switch in direction of where the rest of the book is going to take us. He remembers their covenant because God is a God who remembers the covenant which he established by himself with his people long, long ago. First with Adam, then Noah, and then Abraham, and they're each with their respective families. The book of Exodus declares loud and clear that God is on the move 
once again. For the time has come for God to rescue and liberate his people, the nation of Israel, from the clutches of the Egyptian empire once for all. God liberates because he has a covenant to uphold, a covenant he established long, long ago, but he also liberates so that he could put his personal, intimate, and very real presence on display for all to see. So in our remaining moments together, I'd like to make a few observations from our text this morning. I probably could make about a dozen, but I'll limit myself to just a few, which I hope will help us embrace the reality of God's intimate, personal presence in our own lives as well. So are you ready? Real quickly, here we go. The first observation is that God will do whatever he needs to do to get our attention. You ever thought about that? That God will do whatever he needs to do to get our attention. Notice in Exodus 3, verse 2, that God has an angel of the Lord appear to Moses in flames of fire in a bush that is not consumed. And this burning bush gets the attention of Moses. God sees the fact that Moses turns toward the burning bush, where he then calls out to Moses from within the bush. Moses, Moses, says God. To which Moses responds, here I am. A reply, by the way, says John Calvin. It indicates Moses' willingness to submit and to obey God. God got his attention. It brings up an interesting point, however. This story is not about the burning bush. The burning bush is just a vehicle that God uses to get the attention of Moses. Why is that? Well, because God is a relational God. He desires and hungers for relationship with you and with me. Relationship is what covenant is all about. I will be their God, and they will be my people, declares God's covenantal statement found in Jeremiah 31. I will be their God, and they will be my people. God is relational, and he will do whatever he needs to do to get our attention, but our ability to see what God is doing in our lives or to pay attention to what God is doing in our church or to notice what God is doing in our communities and places in which we work requires something from us. For Moses, it was his response to God that enabled him to hear from God. My friends, the same pattern found in the response of Moses where he embodies this submissive and obedient heart and attitude holds true for you and me today as well. It is a timeless truth. Which begs the question, in what ways is God trying to get your attention these days? Put another way, have you, how have you resisted God's attention-getting ways in your life recently? As a church, we can think about this collectively. What things collectively, what activities, what problems, what distractions, what obsessions keep us as a church, as a community, from seeing how God might be calling to us and inviting us to live a life of transformation and blessing so that we can be a people or that you can be a person of hope and blessing in the lives around you. 
It's a good question to be asking these days, the answer which, with God's help, is worth our discovery. Now, I want to point out something here. Just because God will do whatever he will do to get your attention doesn't mean that we won't resist. In fact, as you read this exchange between God and Moses, it really can be characterized by the clear pattern of resistance by Moses countered by the very persistent call of God nonetheless. Five times in chapter 3 and 4, Moses lays out reasons to God as to why he should not be involved in God's plan of liberation. And five times, God counters and ultimately holds sway at the very end of the conversation. Our resistance in God's call of transformation does not persuade God to walk away, but rather it motivates God to proclaim his I will be with you message all the more resolutely. So I encourage you to ponder and pray this week in the quiet of your heart how God may be trying to get your attention, and then what might your faith response be to him in return? The second and final observation from our story this morning is that God doesn't always give us the answer we are looking for, but he does give us the best answer we could hope to hear. Say that again. It's God doesn't always give us the answer we are looking for, but he does give us the best answer we could ever hope to hear. And that answer, of course, is I will be with you. For example, when Moses said to God in chapter 3, verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? A very understandable question, by the way. All God says to Moses in return is, I will be with you. Certainly enough, but God doesn't really answer the who am I question that Moses raises, does he? Rather, God answers with redirection and says patiently, I will be with you. My presence will undergird you. I will go before you. Now you go. In submission? Yes. In obedience? Yes. By faith? Absolutely. Every time. Now you go. King David knew this intimate presence of God. In Psalm 23, a psalm a lot of us know very, very well. King David said these very familiar words coming from his own personal experience with God. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because your rod and your staff, they comfort me, and that's all I need to know. And so by faith, I will go. But the point of tension is this. Whenever we are faced with those who am I moments, oftentimes we don't get the answer we're looking for, do we? Who am I that I should be the one to carry this health issue in my body? Who am I that I should be the one to make this reorganization presentation at work? Who am I that I should be the one to come alongside my neighbor in distress or my parent in distress or my friend in distress? Who am I that I should be the one to carry the burden of raising a prodigal child all on my own? 
who am I that I should seek justice and that I should love mercy and that I should walk humbly with God while others are carefree and seemingly happy? We all know too well our who am I moments, don't we? And most of the time, the answer from God is not within our sight and certainly not within our grasp. And yet by faith, we must walk this road and trust God that his covenantal promises are true. I will be with you. Trust me. You will see. But you've got to trust me. In closing, I have done some um, devotional reading over the last number of years around this notion of the presence of God and the practicing of his presence in, in my own life personally. And what I have found as I have been doing this reading is that there's a common thread that seems to tie these various authors together in their joyful effort of living for God. It's a daily invitational invitation, a daily intentional invitation to have the very presence of God through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to walk with them in what one of these writers would call the homeliness or the day-to-day routine of, of everyday life. And so I've been thinking, if the common thread is a joyful effort on my part of living for God, then what are some ways that I can actively practice and engage the presence of God each and every day, not to earn his favor? Trust me, hear me. We do not earn God's favor. His, his love for us is 100% complete every single time. And it's not that we are doing it to gain his affection. Again, I have or we have 100% of his affection right here, right now, all the time. But my pursuit is just to know God better, to trust him more, and honestly, just to love him more. That's my goal. Not just talking about it, not just reading about it, but actively participating with God in what he might want to do in and through me for the sake of his kingdom and for his glory. And so just about every day, and I, I say that just as an example, this may not be what you want to do. You may want to think of something or do something different. So hear me when I say this. This is just what I do. It's not something you have to do, but I pray this prayer virtually every day virtually every day, but certainly almost every day that I go to work. And I, I usually come around this bend and then head into this long section of the driveway, which leads into the complex that I, that I work in. And I, I just pray this prayer from, that I learned a couple of years from Ireland. Um, Christ is a light, illumine and guide me. Christ is a shield, overshadow me. Christ under me, Christ over me. Christ beside me on my left and my right. Do you see the pattern? It's the cross. Christ is a light. Christ is a shield on my left, on my right. This day, be within me and without me. Lowly and meek, yet all powerful. Be in the heart of those to whom I speak and in the mouths of those who speak unto me. This day, be within me and without me. Lowly and meek, yet all-powerful. Christ is a light. Christ is a shield. Christ beside me on my left and my right. And so I begin the day this way, 
And then throughout the day, I, I, I try to strive. Bradley, I really do. I try to strive to consciously invite God to sit with me in my meetings with my colleagues or business partners. I don't do it all the time. I strive to invite him to be on a call, a simple call with my mom or my sister or a friend. I actively pray for patience when I feel it slipping away. My wife, Kim, can attest to that. And in so doing, I have found this covenantal promise of God is so true. He is with me. His rod and his staff, they do comfort me. And I find my faith strengthened and my hope secured and his peace prevailing. And slowly, like the drying of paint upon a canvas, God is conforming me to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we gather this morning for his glory. Beautiful. I will be with you always, says God. I promise. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the reality of your ever-present help in our time of trouble and need. And even if we're not in trouble, we need you every single day, and you are with us, and you promise that you will walk with us. We're grateful. Help us to be people of blessing and hope to a world that needs the covenantal word and promise that says, I will be with you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.